What is up? Welcome back to Big Fat Five, a podcast financially supported by Big Fat Snare Drum. My name is Ben Hilsinger, and this week's guest is Chris Myers, a Nashville-based drummer whose main project is the progressive rock band Umphreys McGee, but he's also played with a variety of jazz artists, including Nicholas Payton, Randy Brecker, Dennis de Blasio, and many more. With Humphreys, Chris has shared the stage with Les Claypool, Huey Lewis, Stephen Perkins, Victor Wooten, Bill Evans, Jason Bonham, and of course, many more again, as always. He truly is an insane drummer, like way above my head, and I will say he's also probably the best guest at breaking down his picks. Even though we've heard a few of his choices before, I learned a lot just from his explanations. And big thanks to Neil Daniels for the recommendation. Go check out Neil's episode from a few weeks back. But okay, here is Chris Myers and the five records that shaped him into the player he is today. Cheers. Well, let's just jump into your number or your big fat five. So number one, the albums in Yada Mandata. The release here is 1980. The artist is The Police and the drummer is Stuart Copeland. And like I always tell people, I just asked you to pick a song, but not necessarily is this the only song to listen to, but this is just a song we're going to play. And the song is Driven to Tears. So take it away and then we'll listen to some Driven to Tears. But yeah, how did this shape the way you approach the instrument? Uh, okay. Well, hey, everyone. My name is Chris Myers. I play with Humphreys McGee, Mike Keneally, and various others in the studio, whoever feels like giving me a call. And uh, I have always been enamored by Stuart Copeland's playing and the police as a whole. The band has just always been a part of my soundtrack of life. It's just resonated with that summery feel with the faster reggae uh, and, and, you know, pop sensibilities. And this song, Driven to Tears, to me, was the most representative of Stewart's exciting playing and his approach to songs in the pop idiom, but still, like, just being him and just being like a tiger in the jungle, you know, just killing it with his razor-sharp, tight hi-hat work, which is, like, really my favorite, most contagious thing for me. Playing those, those hats just with reckless abandon, but not like batching, you know, just playing so slick, almost like uh, improvising and dancing in its own voice, like kind of like a jazz player would over the music. Mm -hmm. And he was able to do that and, and still be a pop success. So he demonstrates all of his kind of fast ska reggae kind of syncopations and patterns over the song throughout the verse. And he also plays drum fills, kind of similar to setting up reggae beats, where it's not always just on like your typical forianda and then one downbeats. You know, like he was bringing this like really sophisticated element where it was just like driving bass drum. You know, he's playing tight hi hats on the eight notes, and then he'll like start improvising on the hi hat. And you're thinking in your mind, you know, where 4-4 is, and you're just like kind of feeling this improvisation throughout the verse, almost being expressive to what the the, the lyrics are giving you, are mm -hmm. telling you. And then after that, when he finds a break or, or a fill, or like a space to fill, he'll do it so appropriately and not like, you know, overstated and um, right back to the beat, you know, just always keeping things encompassed within that approach. So like... You know, like he's thinking almost like uh, world music uh, sensibilities to pop. And he brought that uh, in such a cool and slick way. And Driven to Tears is a great tempo and all around demonstration of what Stuart Copeland was about, in my opinion. And then at the end, 
he gets to drive that beat, you know, typical 80s beat, and hitting it like harder than, you know, harder than anyone else, you know, just popping, cracking with that traditional grip. It's really fun to watch. But yeah, basically, Stuart Copeland was my very first choice because when I grew up, even when I was learning to talk, the first thing I said was, don't stand so close to me. <laughs> so it's been always a part of my of my sound. And Zenyatta Madada is a great record for me uh, and for anyone who who are true police fans like and have followed them throughout their career, I, I think, because it's before, you know, the like the more synthetic 80s production, which they still did great with. I just think that that album resonated with me and it's natural dry core sense. It was just almost like like a summery kind of feel when they were young and Stink could belt out those high high notes. Yeah, even if you notice, he's playing the the ride like you would a hi-hat. Yeah. In that sort of jazzier improvisational approach. Like faster reggae kind of syncopations, but but kind of jazzy, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, meaning not swing, but like constantly changing your part, but still making it a part of what's going on. Yep. shows these songs open up for him to like just to go wild on it it will always be cool to like the police they're they're just timeless yes they really are um, all right, so number two, the album is, and I actually have very little experience and or knowledge when it comes to Mitch Mitchell. So the album is Are You Experienced? And the release here is 1967. The artist is Jimi Hendrix. Of course, the drummer is Mitch Mitchell, like I just said, and you chose to highlight the song Fire. So take it away and then we'll listen to some fire. So Mitch Mitchell was introduced to me when I was 13, you know, going through the the whole freaks and geeks po- point of my life you know at junior high high school insecure but yet always had music as a background playing with local bands and i had this really rad friend named zach fioka and i had got to give credit to him for this he would invite me over to his place after after school and he had a drum set and he was actually a, a drummer in the jazz band so then, uh, you know, I thought that was really cool. And I came over and we hung out. And he's first thing he played when we hung out was was fire. And he played to it. And I was like, oh, that's cool. You're actually playing to it and, you know, showing me that vibe, like, of how, how it goes. And it's always stuck with me as well. And then I really listened deep on that record, assuming I was going to learn something. And, and sure enough, it just stuck with me, like, so naturally because Mitch Mitchell, uh, it, again, is similar to Stewart, but different style just explosive with his improvisational uh, ad-lib grooves and patterns all over the kit. And, and it teaches drummers to be a, a leading forefront in the, the nucleus of the energy 
the interpretation and still be like in the pocket, like funk drummers like James Brown, you know, wanted that pocket and stay on it pretty precise for a while. But he took that and made it more of a wild rock ruckus kind of feel, but yet still had that swagger. And through this, his rides patterns and his snare and his feel, just explosive. And these fills, you know, are very much of that a jazz-trained player where you just have a lot of flexibility and dynamics and a lot of torque into your stroke, right, when you play. It's just a certain approach and technique that always resonated with me. And I always thought it was super hip and cool, you know, like hearing him play those patterns throughout the song is almost like a transcription in itself to just to, to study, you know, like basically playing over the bar line, but still keeping that that upbeat funk pocket. But he's playing instead of just playing over and over and over again, like a lot of band leaders and funk would make you do. Instead, he's like, you know, I'm going to be me and I'm going to throw in a little more uh you know, of this jazzier element, which is more stream of consciousness kind of playing, you know, just, but still playing those voices just around it, etc. And, you know, Jimmy's singing, but he's still playing just driving rhythm and explosive uh, approach and, and patterns that are just making your head spin stuff that are in exercise books now to this day because of guys like him um same guy that was like that was ginger baker with cream and rock you know he brought a swagger and a feel that you just have to you, it's not like you you naturally are gifted with that sometimes you are and sometimes you just have to work your ass off to get that feel that nature you know and the instrument almost sounds like a calliope of like one instrument as opposed to like very intricate orchestral, you know, isolated parts. It's all just this mesh warm, like jazzy kind of sw uh, swagger and feel, I guess. And that's what he always brought. And his snare was always popping, but still just rock and roll and just explosive fills going into the chorus. And then you're thinking, okay, that's a great fill. Now what's next? Another fill. And he's keeping these fills going. Let me stand. And you're just like, if you heard like someone on a, like a, a more stiff kind of a drum set or sound or approach, it wouldn't work as much. Um, he just has that that bounce, that feel. And I think I've said enough. That's that's basically Mitch Mitchell to me. <laughs> and he was cool looking. He looked like a just a, a, you know a total like patron of the of the arts of the '70s and '60s with his big afro. And he's just he played like a looked like a swan when he played. He didn't have like you know perfect posture. He was just like with a big afro and it's just like really hip.
styles of that of those times it was late 60s early 70s where people were starting to make the drummer the focal point of the or the energy center of the interpretation and the improv all the while then they're doing their thing so guitar and drums are starting to like have interplay mm -hmm. or have a calliope of aggressive kind of approach and the power trios especially they needed to fill that space with a little bit more art to splash on a canvas and so you get someone like Mitch Mitchell and game over. I mean, that's it. You just that that feel, but also that that sound and and, and the authenticity of it at that time. What was your level of skill at thirteen when you, when this was introduced to you? I mean, I was at the beginning. I was, I mean, I was self taught playing in my basement from age eight to eleven, and then finally I met a buddy in my neighborhood, and we started playing in a, a trio, a band together at age 12, 11 and 12. And then he would show me things and I would just listen to all my peers and what they were listening to. And then I would listen to things naturally on the radio as well. And just playing along with stuff first. Um, but then when I got serious, I took lessons uh, in Palatine, Illinois, where I grew up, a place called The Drum Pad. And my first teacher was Jim Strike, who is, you know, uh, one of the more successful business owners of drum companies back in the day. Really awesome store. I was lucky enough to have that in my area. So then I took lessons, learned how to read, joined the school band, high school jazz, junior high and high school jazz, and then orchestral music as well. And then, yeah, it took me through throughout my high school career playing in local, you know, variety shows and battle of the bands. And I think that just kind of carried me to a place that I wasn't expect. I didn't really know what to expect. And so my mindset was more about drums. And then I started thinking more about theory and music and melody and understanding what it is I've been listening to all these years, you know, like a language I'm translating finally. Growing up, were you, were there a lot of drummers or were you kind of like, you were the guy behind the drum set and jazz band, you were the guy in pep band or was there a lot of competition? Um, yeah, I'd say it was more or less competition, but not intentionally uh, direct towards our, each other. We were young mm -hmm. enough where we, it was more about kind of recreational street cred. <laughs> sure. There was a lot of great drummers and musicians that I grew up with uh, at a young age in my area, in the suburbs of Chicago in the late 80s, early 90s. It was just a very enriched time with a lot of people who were part of that culture and it was just like anything in you know college prep high school world you're just finding yourself competing with someone who's always better you know but like i i learned a lot i mean i wasn't the best at all i was right in the i'd say right in the middle of the pack most of the time and then uh just kept playing and playing and trying to keep an open mind and i just wanted to be on the stage you know that that was it and once i moved on from that to college, then I started really cracking the whip, so to speak, on taking this seriously, like as an adult, like, what am I going to do with this, you know? And um, that was really the game changing moment for me, college. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I was, I wasn't like one of the best at all. I was, I did a battle of, or what is it, the Guitar Center drum off sure, back in yeah. the 90s. Mm -hmm. I did that. And I, I think I placed third or fourth. And it was, uh, it was a lot of really heavy, great drummers when I was 17 or 18, I think, when I did it. 18, I think. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of great musicians, some of which are really successful today in other bands. What, I mean, you went to college wanting to do this as a career, or were you just kind of letting it uh, develop as it did? Or what was the mindset going into college? Uh, I kind of went in not 100% you know, sure that this is what I wanted to do for a living. Mm -hmm. And I don't think most would be, to be honest. Even if you are a studied player and you're you're trained to get a scholarship, um, you still go in and it's a whole new ball game. It's a whole new, you know, format to uh, adjust to. And, and and what I mean format, I don't mean just curriculum based. I mean like life based. Like mm -hmm. you're in college now. You're kind of figuring it out as a young adult now, and you know what you do with your time. 
in between your classes and time management to me is more really what college was all about for me. I mean, of course you get a great objective and subjective approach to things with textbooks and, you know, case studies and great professors, but like, you know, the real world is a whole school of itself. So I'd say, yeah, I was, I wasn't really aware of what I was going to be doing until about, I'd say about age 21. And I just realized when I started getting hired to play professionally around Chicago that I might actually have a chance at this. Well, you are an incredible drummer, man. I was going down so many of your videos this past week, and my God. <laughs> yes, oh, you have a pack Thanks, man. <laughs> I appreciate it, man. I'm just like anyone else, just trying to keep working and keep trying to learn and trying to unlearn and trim away the fat and add more grease, whatever. I'm trying to add all that, do all that. Yeah, you, I think I think uh, I'm with you on that one. I see. I think more so. I'm trying to unlearn bad habits as opposed to learn new things. <laughs> but um, all right. So number three. Oh, and and the reason why I asked about um, if you had a lot of competition was because I grew up in a very small town in basically Canada and Washington State, and I was the only. I mean, we had a few other drummers, but when it came to being obsessed with the drums, I was kind of the only dude, and. I attribute that to a lot of my confidence as a young player that kept me going. And I have so many friends that were from the bigger town of Spokane that were way better drummers than me, but they had like 20 other drummers on the drum line and they ended up just kind of losing interest. But because I was the only guy, I, I, I'm happy because I might've been like, well, there's too much competition. Bye. There so. you go. That's sometimes there are blessings to that situation too. Mm -hmm. You don't have to feel like you're in the fire all the time. Mm -hmm. um, with all the limelight, you know, and, and everything that comes along with it, you, you know, if you're if you're in the back three or four positions back from those those top top guys, you can learn and and strat, you know, have a better strategy about mm -hmm. everything in, in life for you and for and for your your career. Yeah, I agree with that. That's kind of how it was for me too, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I did have a lot of players though. Uh, you know, we had a Chicago scene was really. It was like kind of a, it was flourishing. It was kind of like a romantic era for rock and even like hard rock to grunge and that whole transition in the 90s was huge in Chicago. It was almost as, almost as big as like Seattle and some of the, you know, Western places uh, and maybe, or New York, you know, it was a major city that had some cool culture that you were able to grab onto and you just had to find those people. There was a lot of that. I mean, the players were, Definitely out. I mean, I, I grew up with some guys like the singer from Rise Against was in my high school class and we were friends and we played a lot. I did. I just met Tom Morello in the last couple of years, but he was from Libertyville for a point in his life, which is a suburb near mine. And he also played in, if I had it right, the guitarists from Tool when they were in high school, which were in the Burbs at, at a time in their life. Um, so I've learned a lot about and then you have the Smashing Pumpkins. You have a lot of other hard rock bands, you know, Cheap Trick was in Rockford, Illinois. Mm. Um, you had a lot of great hair bands back in metal bands. There is definitely a culture where people were growing up really fast at a young age to learn all the all the licks and all the all the things you had to learn. And you you didn't have internet, you know, to rep you know, to try to use resources. You had to just get out and just really put the work in and then you then start playing shows and then Hopefully you can keep it all together. So yeah, that's kind of how it started for me. Sure. Hey y'all, I wanted to, <laughs> I can't say, I wanted to talk to you about a drum I've recently received from Preston at Vessel Drum Co. It's an ocean patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum, and it's incredible. It's got a 1.5 millimeter shell, brass shell, with 10 lugs, chrome over brass, triple flange hoops, a trick uh, three position strainer, 42 strand wires. It's lovely, it's loud, and it cuts and records as beautiful as a piece of butter cake. And, and Preston actually, this is why it's called the ocean patina, is he covers the shell with seaweed and then drops it in the ocean for a certain period of time. And then it patinas with all these crazy cool designs. And if you all remember, Preston was actually one of the first guests on the podcast. When I first started out, I didn't really know what the Big Fat Five format was going to be or if it was going to be even Big Fat Five at all. 
but I went to his garage, his his you know where he makes all of his drums. It was really cool. He walked me through the episode is essentially from start to finish what happens with the drum, and it was it was a really fun episode. It's now archived at bigfatsnaredrum.com, just because it doesn't fit the format of Big Fat Five. I want you to get back to the show, but go check it out. This drum is beautiful, and he actually let me use it on an Eve Six tour, and I didn't keep it, and I regretted it ever since then, just because I was trying to pinch pennies at the time, and I just kept thinking about it, and so the opportunity to get it again was presented, and it is one of my favorite drums. So the Ocean Patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum, check it out, reach out to me, go to Vessel Drum Co., the Instagram's just at Vessel Drum Co. and check it out. It's amazing. It's beautiful. Sounds great. Bye. All right. So number three, the album is Led Zeppelin. Released here is 1969. The artist is, of course, Led Zeppelin. The drummer is Bonzo, John Bonham, and the first track on the damn album of one of the greatest bands of all time, Good Times, Bad Times. So take it away. Yeah, I mean... Needed less to say, I mean, John Bonham is arguably the greatest rock and roll drummer ever. Of course, that's going to be argued and debated uh, because there's so many. But John, to me, was the nucleus of my rock and roll experience growing up. Again, it was being introduced at a young age, around 13 or 14 to these. Actually, age 12, I heard the, the Led Zeppelin IV album for the first time in my life. And yeah, it changed my life. It was a funny time too because it was kind of edgy and controversial to some parents and, and people at that time in the 80s because there were there were accusations that there you you know you play the record backwards and there was some satanic uh, or or just you know inappropriate messages or whatever and i was like okay well i want to listen to that i want to check that out you know because i want to hear what's edgy and what people are almost afraid of and and that was just the rebel in me trying to learn what real rock and roll was at that time. And that was a time of the late 60s, too, you know, like when Hendrix was around and those kind of bands, you know, were way ahead of their time. And that once John Bonham was in my palate, like I just was infected for the rest of my life and still am. I mean, he's just his sounds were infectious. His playing and approach was it sounded big and you know, and, and just girthy, but groovy, you know, and uh, this tune to me represents all of the elements that he brought to music in rock, like rock drumming and as a band member. He was accompanying, but yet soloing in some ways, but not getting too, uh, you know, overstated. Like those hits, bah, bah, the hi-hat, you always got the hi-hat stomping with the foot which is another thing you can hear so openly in his his recordings. And again, people love that live element where you're hearing something in the room and you feel like you're in that room. He brought that and then he would be like, instead of like playing just, you know, he's bringing another approach that's more explosive more and inter more interpretation more you know uh it's exciting and uh he makes it just sort of this rolling and rhythm bossy kind of sound where the toms are almost equal to the snare in its backbeat and its approach and uh he was able to do that and my favorite part about his this take and other things he's done is he was able to play those high like those patterns and backbeats with his hands and then keep the feet not just playing downbeats, but also doing triplets in between. You know, adding those little flares of triplets was was amazing. And you're just like, whoa, wait, that just changed my mind. or changed my whole approach to, to, to how I go with drumming and, and, and how I hear it. And he was just one of those guys, you know. So those all those elements are in this song. And then, of course, you always want to relate to the singer and the, and the vibe of Robert Plant. And John just really complimented the music all so well while still being himself. And that, to me, is just, that's a tall order. That's hard to achieve. And, and, it, and he just had it. He's a legend.
the triplets again, but yet not interrupting, just adding energy. Yeah, it's like blown out a little bit. The it's just the way it's recorded just sounds so pleasing and warm to me. Yeah, and it's funny that's how scrappy the 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 mic approach was too on these recordings. Like with some of John's stuff, it was just a couple mics, to my understanding. You know, it's just positioned right in the room. And, gra- you know, capturing all the things that we do in plugins today, but doing it in a live sense. And that, to me, is brilliant, and it's it's a groundbreaking experience. So what's not to say? John Bonham is one of those guys you just can't deny, and you have to have it in your palate. You just have to. Amen. All right. Number four, album. the album is Speak No Evil. The release here is... Ni- We're switching gears a little bit. Uh, release here is 1966. The artist is Wayne Shorter. The drummer is Elvin Jones, and the song choice is Witch Hunt. So take it away. Yeah, so Witch Hunt, it was basically uh, uh, introduced to me when I was in my jazz studies program at Elmhurst College, and I used to play under the late, great Mark Colby, who's a tenor sax player who I used to play gigs with around Chicago, and may he rest in peace. He was a a good friend and a great mentor, Um, and he he showed me all the good stuff in terms of the right albums and the right records and the right players, uh, not only just drummers, but all the other instrumentalists that you have to study and just enjoy in your recreational listening. And he introduced me to this record. And man, when that first track, Witch Hunt Hits, I mean, to give you a, a small synopsis of what I remember from my <laughs> my past school years, I mean, I can tell you this, the you know, Elvin Jones was one of the, the giants in jazz because, again, he was an innovator who played inside and played through the the movements from the bebop era to progressing into hard bop, post bop, uh, you know, and being, you know, a, a leader in the in the energy center of that quartet or whichever group he was playing with. Drummers were in the forefront now. They were interpreting music the way they deemed to do it from their knowledge, but getting to play outside a little bit, being over the bar line a bit, creating a, a, a brush fire, you know, something that's going to build. And the only way to do that is to incorporate a lot of your fundamentals and make it creative and fun. I mean, when you do these books and exercises that your teachers give you or that you give yourself, you have to assimilate that and then innovate from that. You can't just copy all the time. You you. You imitate for a certain stage of your career or your development, and then you take it and make it your own based off of how it how it works in the in the in the groove. And Alvin made that groove undeniable on that swing. I mean, the swing is so hard and so mysterious, kind of like when you listen to your first Miles record. It's similar, similar vibes, but the songwriting is also brilliant. The horn sections are great, and it complements the drummer to like be explosive on certain hits. And man, was he explosive! Elvin was known to be almost like an animalistic jazz drummer when he needed to be. He was known for triplet phrasing, kind of like how Bonham was doing stuff with his feet in rock music. There would be no John Bonham. There would be no Ginger Baker. There would be no Mitch Mitchell if it wasn't for guys like Elvin Jones. They were doing that before before any of those guys, and they were influencing rock drummers to be creative. And the triplet phrasing in his hand, the accompanying, what they call comping in your snare work underneath the melody of a jazz melody is undeniable. And it's just like this, vul- this rolling in rhythm, just how would I put it, like a steamroller in the music. It's just like, but it's smooth and it's cool. It's still... And they'll like throw some fills with uh, some doubles and the toms and the you know the high tom, low tom very subtly. You could even hear him growling <laughs> like a some kind of caveman in the in the recordings. You could hear him being like, you know, and you're like, what the hell? It changed my whole world and, and it just knocked me out. So he always managed to bring that rolling in rhythm feel and triplets like no other. And he would accent the triplets. He would in different parts of the syncopation and, and phrasing and doing this all the while just 
playing in the moment. And it's all there. It's his facility. And then he would just stomp on that kick drum for a big hit and man it comes out and he's doing that when the trumpets are hitting the high notes on the on the melody which is exactly what you should be doing and that's the way i felt with elvin's playing and, and, and for me when i was in college i didn't even know enough yet about understanding where it all came from but it just felt epic and timeless i guess i hope i uh, explained that clearly but yeah I think that's, you did a great job yeah that's really what younger drummers should should get hip to. You know, they don't always get that unless they get a teacher to tell them. But Alvin Jones, Tony Williams was that way too. You know, in his teens, playing with Miles and just being this phenom with big open hi hats and creating the beginning of fusion jazz of fusion drumming, because it was so untamed. But yet, they know how to play inside, and they're just getting away with the very edge of it. It keeps you on the edge of your seat, and that to me is just. You know, that's legendary. I need to snag this record. It's on my list. Yeah, it's a great listening record for any time of the day. See, oh, yeah, there it is. Listen to all these... Really check out the triplet phrasing. Still keeping that pulse. And then here we go. Back to it, subdued. But intense. Here. That's just shit is just legendary. It's... so badass to me drummers don't always in jazz come across as being like a ruckus you know but if you're if you're this good and then you you have that bring it did you ever get a chance to see him or or meet him uh, uh sadly i know i wish that was one of my only regrets is to not have met him and Tony Williams because Tony passed away when I was in college and Alvin, he passed away in the 2000s at some point. And I heard stories about seeing him at the local jazz showcase in Chicago and I just could never make it mm. when he played and big regret. But yeah, I mean, he's 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 one of those guys also that were timeless enough where they, they just played throughout their whole life and their career into the until they passed away and still sounded like gold you know like mm -hmm. he still to the very end of his career into his 90s or 80s or 90s i'm not sure what age he died at but it, he was old and he's still playing and he would there's some funny stories about him too <laughs> i like players with a backstory too a lot of character and he was a f funny individual from what i heard and he he was just a sweetheart, too, I heard, just a gentle giant. But you didn't want to piss him off, you know, because he'll just be like, and he would just be like, with his, you know, or he would pick you up and trying to steal my shit. And then, you know, like, put you over here. But, yeah, that's what he would do. He was, he'd come into the room and just be like this smiling ball of energy, but, like, just cool as hell. And then he'd get on that kid and get in a fit. And just a, just a spell. And all the players are like, oh, there he is. We're going with this. And that's... Not too many people get to do that, but you know, that's Elvin Jones. So number five and Vinny's not talked about enough in this podcast. I don't know. I don't know why. Cause he's really? obviously, yeah, he really, 
maybe people are too intimidated to talk about him. But anyways, wow. uh, number five, Vinny Caliuda, release here's 93. The drummer is, of course, Vinny. It's his record. So the song choice is I'm Tweaked, Attack of the 20-Pound Pizza, which is <laughs> probably the greatest song t- uh, title of all time. So take it away. Yeah, so I don't know where to start, but it's pretty obvious that Vinny, to me, is probably not only a blueprint to modern drummers, but he's probably one of the greatest all-around and studio drummers living. And that's not even an opinion. That's just a fact. And he may or may not be your style, but you can't deny that he is the highest masterful level of musician. And I don't mean just drummer. I mean musician. These guys, you know, he's like one of these almost alien like he's 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 a he's just got like this photographic memory and has a has a sheer talent to do anything from sight reading brilliant music to playing in any moment and making it feel like pure gold and whatever he's doing and believe me he knows what he's doing you know he's studied the shit out of it he comes from like that generation of guys who really made sure they had their shit together when they played and he did it so naturally and also had a sense of humor uh, as a person and that's another important thing drummers don't always talk about is when you're going to play gigs and you're networking and meeting people you got to be a good hang you got to be cool and you know and if you're not i don't mean cool as in like one of the cool kids i mean just like you just got to learn how to be a a part of something um a little selfless and you know charismatic a good sense of humor and he had all of that and also the while being like just just this crazy freak of brilliance. Um, I've, I've only met him once and it was in 2000 and I was so starstruck. I, I just couldn't say anything. My, my tongue was <laughs> yeah. twisted. I just felt like an idiot, but like he was really nice. And where uh, was it in Chicago? Um, he was there for a, a random gig with some mutual friends, an old friend of his who had a big band at the time. They played in Chicago at the Martyrs, and uh, basically he was being hired by an old friend of his who was the band leader. And uh, uh, man, literally one of these things where Vinny can also come to a gig, no matter what it is, anywhere in the world, sit down, look at the chart, if it's a chart reading gig, and just nail it. I mean, he was even nailing it in first takes. It's kind of a phenomenon. Uh, But anyway, getting back to his playing, he would just be more of this fusion-y labeled type player, but he did everything. He was coming from the Zappa school. He was in his 20s in a long line of, of drummers auditioning for the band. Right away got it when Frank put him on the on the chopping block with, with his difficult audition and, and had it all together and did it with a natural interpretation. And then he just kind of played throughout his career with that and the and then started working with other studio greats through, through that gig. And then he started playing with everyone from Shaka Khan to, you know, Steely Dan, Chick Corea, uh, Sting, eventually had him in the 90s. He played on pop records all throughout the 90s. He was like one of the most hired, sought-after guys. I, I don't know much more to gush about him. He's, I'm, I'm one of those guys who's obsessed, and I try not to play too much like him. Not to say I could, but like I at least am influenced by doing stuff. I don't know if he probably appreciates people copying his work, but I think he's got to understand that everyone just loves him to death and what he did and what he has been doing. Um, and Vinny is like in that class of his own where he can do literally anything, any style, and just, like I said, make it sound like pure gold. And uh, this rec- this song, real quick, is not your average typical old school rock. Like It's got a rock riff. But it's kind of like in the fusion realm where it's all catering to a solo record for a drummer at his level, just helping, you know, to to accompany him doing his thing. And what he's always been known for doing, other than playing groove, is displacing the beat in a fun, uncanny way like he did with Frank back in the day and doing it in long cyclical stretches and keeping, you know, right on that downbeat when he needs to get back to it. And then when he solos... The soloing never gets old. In fact, you know, like some drummers sometimes might just keep repeating an idea because they don't know where to, like maybe they don't have enough facility to to go anywhere else. Well, he, he's he got that and, you know, ages more of that stuff. Like he just he just keeps going, you know, light years ahead of everyone in their, their soloistic uh, listening approach. He's just like playing over the bar line, playing all these groupings that's almost like Far Eastern quintuplets over four, septuplets over four, 
non-tuplets so before, you know, again, a Frank Zappa study on a lot of drummers and his compositions. And, and Vinny just does it naturally and still managed to use it in his career uh, a lot. So this this song kind of just took me out in college and I just loved it. It's it's fun and it's it's mind blowing. So you're like in this feeling like this is where it's going to be, but just wait. <laughs> Placing it, 16th note. Now, wait, what the hell? And you're like, now. <laughs> you're like, what the fuck is that? He does it again. <laughs> Still not there yet. Now, now one. You got these different displaced sequences going on. It's in 4 4. Everything is just so exciting, you know, all the way. This is, could be a chart, it could not be, but something in the moment you worked out and he just does it right there. And this is where he starts doing like... Kind of Vinny, or I'm sorry, Tony Williams-esque kind of things, but it's Vinny. Sure. Now, here we go. Now here's a solo. This is right here. You know, just playing like implied rhythms over the original feel. Builds it up. I mean, the keyboard is just like, I hope I know where the one is. Yeah, I mean, that could even be just a, a sequence, a mini sure. sequence. But yeah. Oh, this fill right here. This is unbelievable. Oh, God. I mean, that just takes you out. No matter who you are, it just absolutely takes you out. Got that backbeat, my God. Yeah. <laughs> 
mean, obviously, it's doing way more than just this. And like, doing other things. <laughs> I mean, that, 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 yeah, that fill, that backbeat. Those rolls. Yeah. But he gets back to it, you know? He plays the song, whatever it is. Yeah. And now we're back to this. the engineer just on the talk back yeah i think we got it <laughs> yeah <laughs> it was a little uh a snare rough in that third section no i mean we can fly it in this it's is okay. just it's highly technical stuff that guys like that really influenced the players of today that do try to do that sort of thing but but they started that they brought it to another level like dennis chambers is another one of them i'd say dave weckel is it's a tailored uh, perfectionist with his sound. Maybe, you know, also grease it up these days. He's, you know, when he plays, you know, these guys are all like studio giants. who can do, have the ability to do anything. Vinny was one of those guys, but he also managed to be kind of a, a distinct person and player amongst them because he's got this, this energy where some guys just, when they play, it's like all, you feel it, you know, from head to toe. And he has that. Anyway, I don't know. I'm just totally like, I'm totally fanboying right now. But but he's probably one of my single greatest influences in more uh, modern type of drummers. And he listens to the same influences that I did. Like, he gives credit to Mitch Mitchell. He gives credit to Stuart, most likely, you know. All of these same players, Bonham. Um, but yet also understands how to play like a classically trained, you know, master of rhythm with imp implying layers and layers of rhythms over a quarter note. Uh, pulse um, and that's that was part of the hardcore training that Frank did with his players and once you have that you have it most likely forever mm -hmm. and he's he's one of those guys <laughs> anyway well that was your big fat five so on the way out for people that want to get a hold of you want to work with you study with you anything how do people get a hold of you and uh, all this will be in the show notes for people listening but promo time if you'd like uh, okay if you were to reach out or wanted to, uh, you know, ask any questions or just, you know, whatever, I'd say Instagram is always my best handle for all of that. Uh, it's Chris Myers Drums with a K, K-R-I-S-M-Y-E-R-S -E Drums. And uh, you could always DM me. Otherwise, I have a website, which is still always con constantly under construction, uh, chrismyersdrums.com. I rarely check the fan mail there but i'm gonna start doing that again and yeah i mean once you dm me i can go from there with you and we can figure out if there's anything i can do to help i live in nashville in bellevue in that area and uh, i have a home studio and i try to do work here when i can for artists too so if you're in the area um, keep an eye out on my dates for side projects and maybe we can link up uh bands in town i'm in on that i'm on that as well so well, great man well i will let you continue to have a great friday cheers man. i'll talk to you soon man so yep. long bye all right this week's skinny little one is from ethan weizar hey ben uh this is ethan weizar first off i wanted to say thank you for a great podcast um second as the plug i wanted to say i'm in a band called the host country and in another band called contacta i'm a drummer for both um, they're both based out of Iowa, um, but as a whole, I've been playing drums for about the last 20 years and been playing consistently in bands for like the last 10 or so. But my pick for today is Carter Beauford from Dave Matthews Band. Um, I was obsessed with the Dave Matthews Band in high school, like two bumper stickers on the back of my 1990 Grand Marquis obsessed. Um, but I ended up taking a long break for whatever reason and dove back in in the last year or so, and it reminded me how influential his playing has been on me and on my playing for most of my life. Um, you know, I hear the criticism that he overplays, which I definitely understand when you get into the 15 to 20 minute versions of their songs, but I 
also know that he can just find the perfect groove or the perfect low key part when he needs to or whatever the song calls for. He can fill in those gaps or back off as he needs. You know, and trying to play along with his parts in general with my considerably smaller kit taught me just to to go for the feel of the song above all else. And then, you know, I feel like it also made me pretty adaptable with, with keeping that feel. So whenever something gets weird on stage with like if like backing tracks skip or, you know, whatever else can happen when you're up there, um, it, it made me, you know, stick with the feel of the song. The song I specifically want to call out is Pig by or off the album Before These Crowded Streets. The groove is deceivingly chill, but I just love it. Anyway, uh, thanks for the uh, podcast. Uh, Big fan. Uh, No notes. And thanks. Oh, isn't it strange How we move our lives for another day Skipping on beat What if a great wave Should wash us all away Just thinking out loud I don't mean to dwell On this dying thing But look at my blood It's alive right now Deep and sweet within Pouring through our veins Intoxicating Wine to tears and drinking it deep And an evening spent dancing It's you and me This love will open our world From the dark side we can see The glow of something bright Oh, there's much more than we see here Don't burn the day Away And that's the show. If you're listening on a platform that allows ratings and reviews, do that. It helps more people find the show, so it'll get bigger and better, and hopefully I'll have a chance to sell out one day. But you'll be an OG listener that can brag to all your friends. Anyways, why don't you go and check us out at BigFatSnareDrum.com and follow us on all the socials. Just search for Big Fat Snare Drum and you will find us. The show is edited in part using Isotope RX Audio Editor. It's amazing, so go check that out at Isotope.com. And thanks again to Gunnar Olsen for the theme music. Bye!